All right. Jeff is, uh, he's an investor out of St. Louis, Missouri. I met Jeff in a, uh, a mastermind, actually. We were, we were in a mastermind when we first met. And um, this is just, this isn't his intro, but personal deal. Um, after I met Jeff, really good, genuine dude um, and smart too. He, he's about investing and making money, of course, which is what we're, what we're all here to do. But he, he's genuinely a good guy too. And he tries to uh, make these deals work well for everybody. And uh, that mastermind we're in, it's not just business. You get into a lot of personal stuff like that in, inside that group. And uh, I can tell you just from sitting in that room with him, he is the type of individual that I like to align myself with, which is why we're, we're bringing him down here to present this information to y'all. Because um, with subject twos, there's a lot of nuance. And I wouldn't want to have just anybody present that information. Jeff was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, he's also a Marine Corps veteran an entrepreneur, real estate investor, creative finance expert, and a mentor to aspiring real estate entrepreneurs across the United States. Uh, Jeff integrates a dynamic mix of traditional investing advice and education with creative real estate acquisition strategies to help build and grow their brands and businesses. Jeff utilizes a blend of strategic online and offline marketing strategies in his daily activities as owner of his St. Louis-based real estate investment firm, Missouri Sell Now. Uh, he credits his success to out-of-the-box thinking. His philosophies on real estate investing can be summed up with the axiom creative first. And his methods are available for all to learn through his mentorship program at sub2empire.com. Uh, Jeff is an avid outdoorsman and foodie. When he's not helping others achieve their financial objectives, he can usually be found at the local Mexican restaurant with his wife or dreaming up his next outdoor adventure. So join me in welcoming Mr. Jeff Kaufman to the call. All right. Welcome, everyone. That was a... Uh... That was really nice of you. I just messed up my screen. That's a great introduction, right? right. Um, let me first let me first um, go ahead and share my screen with you guys. I want to make sure that we've got this uh, this whole technical. Uh, actually, yeah. Brian, you let me give you. Uh, I got to give you permission real quick. There you go, sir. You should be able to share away. All right. Let's see. How's this? There you go. All right. Perfect. Everybody good? Should be seeing. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for that uh, super, super nice introduction. And you are way too kind. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, this is something that I tr truly genuinely love to do. I love to, uh, I love to talk about creative real estate investing. Uh, I'm not going to waste a bunch of time with introductions. Ryan has really, really kind of um, set the bar there already. Now let's make sure that this, there we go. There we go. All right. So just, uh, um, Brian's already introduced me. I'm, my name's Jeff Kaufman. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, all the rest of the good stuff, the veteran owner of, uh, of uh, sub two empire and, um, sub two empire.com as well as Missouri sell now here in St. Louis. And, um, 
little bit about how I got into creative financing. Um, and that's a really, really broad term. Uh, creative financing encompasses a lot of different strategies. My main focus is on subject to deals. Uh, I love the strategy because I am uh, somewhat of a control freak. Okay. So I, uh, buying a house subject to gives me ultimate control and minimizes my risk. And so that's, uh, that's exactly what I'm after. Uh, but I was thrown into uh, creative, uh, creative deals while I was thrown into subject two uh, right off the bat, right out of the gates. Um, I, the story kind of is, and I'll, I'll be brief with it, but uh, I designed this big, huge Google ads campaign. I was terrified for uh, at least a couple months to start it because I was, I was afraid of the cost of it. Um, so one Saturday night after uh, maybe some liquid encouragement, I decided to go ahead and, and hit the go button. I, I pressed play and I just stood up and I walked away. Uh, the very next day I went about my business and I got a, my, my phone buzzed on my hip and I picked up my phone and I had a, I had a brand new lead that had come in off of the website that I was pushing these, uh, uh, pushing these ads to long story short, later that night, I went down, I went out to the seller's property and I got, I had my very first contract, had my very first deal under contract. That deal ended up being a subject to deal. This was a situation where the seller was, uh, she had a, she was diagnosed with this medical condition. And so what she did was she decided that, and, and it was terminal. That's what they told her. They told her it was terminal. Well, so she went out, she emptied her bank accounts. She went on all these vacations. She stopped paying on her home. She stopped paying on her car. Um, it was just a really, really terrible situation for her. But it only got worse because just before she called me, about a month before she called me, she discovered, she got a phone call from the, uh, from the doctor's office that her diagnosis, she was misdiagnosed. Uh, and this was a, this was a tumor that she had, she had in her brain. She was misdiagnosed and it turns out she wasn't, she wasn't terminal. Uh, so, I mean, understandable, you know, total, totally freaked out. She totally freaked out. She called me, struck a deal uh, to kind of summarize that deal. Uh, I bought that subject too. I turned around and I flipped it on the retail market. Uh, we kind of, we call that a wholetail in, in some, uh, in some arenas. I walked away with a check at closing for $41,000. And that was my very, very first deal. And so instantly, right then and there, I was absolutely sold on the, on the strategy. Uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, I, you know, being so new, I didn't have this, the network that I do now. I didn't know the, uh, I didn't have any real title companies that really knew what they were doing with, uh, with, you know, having a lean in place. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more and, and define uh, what subject to exactly is in just a second. Uh, but I, I had trouble finding a closing company or a closing attorney. And so I ended up closing that deal myself and uh, it's absolutely terrifying. I was scared to death. And uh, about a month after that one closed, going to dinner on a Friday night, walking out the door to go to dinner with my wife to Mexican, by the way. And uh, I got another phone call got another deal right then and there uh, that night, another subject to deal, walked away with a $25,900 check from that deal. 
in about 45 days. So I am almost at that point, um, I actually have one more deal after that. Uh, to sum it up, in that first three months, three and a half months that I was in business for myself as a real estate investor, I had replaced, I had surpassed my yearly W-2 income. And so at that point I said, this is it for me. This is, this is what I'm gonna do. So that's a little bit about how I got into it. The reason I love creative financing and particularly subject to is because number one, when I got started in this, I didn't have a ton of cash. You know, I didn't have, um, you know, I, I was, I didn't have this big bankroll where I could go out and and spend money, put down payments on houses and all this stuff. I mean, I had just coming off come off of a uh, divorce a few years earlier, and you know, things were tight. But I knew I was going to do this, and um, I figured this is probably the best way for me to uh, to go about this. And so that's what I did. Number two, I get to help people that. Uh, most of my, I don't, I don't particularly like to call them competition because we all work together in this business, you know, but, uh, but I get to buy houses that a lot of other people simply don't know how to buy or they can't buy because the numbers don't work for them. So, I mean, some of those houses, there's very little or even, even no equity in some of these deals. And on top of that, I am not, uh, I'm not in this box where, where I, where I have to use one specific strategy for, uh, I, you know, I have to like, I go out and make a cash offer on a house and I'm not in this box where I have to do that. I can actually buy any house that I want using this strategy. Doesn't have to, you know, it can have a ton of equity in it, it could have no equity and it doesn't matter. If there's financing in place, um, the, thing that, the thing that I like to tell people is you gotta remember that you know, the money has already been allocated to this deal. So my job then is to go build that rapport with my seller and see if they're willing to let me use that financing that's already in place. If I've got that secured, the rest of it's easy peasy. So that's just a little bit of, about, uh, about why I love it. Real quick, Ryan mentioned this. You can find us over at uh, sub2empire.com. Uh, we have a, a group and private coaching uh, program that we run called the uh, Sub2 Empire Apprentice Program. And you can find that at sub2empire.com slash coaching. And then you can find us on social as well. We're on just about everything out there. You know, if you're out on Instagram or YouTube, whatever, and you go up in the search, uh, the little search uh, bar, just search for Sub2 Empire. We're like the only ones out there with that name. So, All right. I don't know if anybody's on the, on this call. I know Ryan's done a couple subject two deals, uh, but I don't know you know what level uh, we're dealing with here as far as uh, folks' experience with it. So I'm just going to quickly define it for you. Um, it's a uh, it's a strategy for acquiring real estate whereby the buyer assumes the debt that a seller has secured through a loan. And are you guys uh, Ryan? Are you guys a mortgage state or a deed of trust state? Uh, deed of trust. You are deed of trust. That's right. I actually do one in San Antonio right now. So it's a strategy for acquiring real estate whereby the buyer assumes the debt that a seller has secured through a loan, a deed of trust or mortgage and a promissory note without assuming the note itself or even qualifying for that loan. So we're not assuming loans. We're not assuming, um, we're not going out and qualifying with a bank and trying to assume that loan we're just simply paying on somebody else's loan, okay? 
you, the buyer, you simply take over the responsibility of making the payments from the seller in exchange for legal title to the property and any other consideration that might be uh, on the table. So basically what that means is uh, you're just, uh, you're taking over someone's payment. And I want you to pay special attention to uh, this line that says, uh, whereby the buyer assumes the debt. Those are the, those are the key words here. We are not assuming loans. We are promising to pay another person's debt to that person. So we are assuming debt and we are not, uh, we are not assuming a loan. We are not qualifying a loan. So that's the key that I want you to pull out of this, out of this statement here. Uh, by the way, if you all have questions as we go through this, um, I'd like to kind of, if we can, I got a ton to go through here. I'd like to kind of, if we can, just kind of uh, stack those questions up and and we'll we'll figure out a stopping point at some here yeah. at some, some point here. It, too, yeah. Right? Hey, if y'all want, y'all can throw them in the chat, and then whenever Jeff's ready, we'll come back and and get to them. Okie doke. All right. First thing we all need to know: subject two is legal in all fifty states. You're going to see people in Facebook groups. You're going to see people out there telling you that. Um, you know, it used to make me so mad. I'd, I'd wake up in the morning. That was my morning activity. I'd get a cup of coffee and I'd sit down and I'd read through some of these Facebook groups. And I used to get so angry uh, when I'd see people talk about subject two and, uh, and its legality. Uh, but it is, it is something that you could do in all 50 states. It doesn't matter. You know, so if you're a virtual investor uh, out of corpus, you absolutely can do a deal in Wyoming. So... All right, so this is, uh, this is really something very important to me. Uh, this is how I define, this is how I interpret subject to deals. And um, for me, uh, this, is, this is the perfect statement. This is, a, this is earning enough of a seller's trust that the seller is willing to deed a property of which they have an enormous personal stake in to me in exchange for the promise of managing that gift in a reliable, trustworthy, and diligent manner. And what that means, what that means to me is I'm making a, I'm making a promise and they are, they, the seller is trusting me enough to follow through with that promise. And I, uh, I'm one of those people. I just, uh, if I can see that it's not going to be, be a deal for me up front, if I have any inkling of an idea that I'm not going to be able to pay that very first mortgage payment or any payment thereafter, I'm simply not going to do the deal. It's not worth it. It can get you in a lot of trouble. Um, and, um, uh, it, it can it can really make your life kind of a living hell. It really can, because um, you're essentially uh, you're essentially becoming sort of business partners with a seller when you do a subject to deal, especially if it's going to be something that you hold on long term. So uh, that's just uh, uh, and there's there's the uh, the bullet points that I was talking about. By the way. Uh, this is going to be available to you. These slides are going to be available to you uh, later on. All right. Some of the benefits of subject to investing. Number one, no bank qualifying. As I said previously, we are not talking. The only reason we're talking to a bank is if we've got to get information on the loan that's in the, uh, that's, that's currently on that property. And we do that through a, through a pot, limited power of attorney. It's possible to buy real estate with very little money. In fact, 
I take it even further. Um, I have been paid uh, several times for taking over a property subject to. Um, so it's not only possible to buy it with very little money, it's actually possible to get paid to buy somebody's property subject to. And again, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but you can buy houses that many of the other investors would pass on, uh, certainly wholesalers. And that's possible because, well, I don't know if we have any, any wholesalers in the, in the panel here, but uh, you know, when, you, when a wholesaler goes out and builds a list to mail uh, through RAI print mail, uh, but when an when a investor goes out and builds a list to mail and they're a wholesaler, not, a, not an investor, but a wholesaler, the, generally their very first uh, their very first criteria is they need all this equity. You know, I would say they need a minute, you know, a lot of them when they build that list, they may make their minimum equity requirement like 50%. I mean, that's, I, I don't even, I, that doesn't even cross my mind. I don't even think about, I just send mail to, to sellers. So I don't have to, I don't need that requirement. I don't need that much equity. There is no limit to how many properties you can buy subject to as many as you want to own. If any of you are uh, W-2 employees, we know that there's a limit on how many properties you can buy as a W-2 employee using your own credit. And that number is 10. It's 10, it's just flat out, it's 10. Um, so subject to, you can own as many as you want. Doesn't matter. And then of course you have, you have all of the tax advantages uh, just as, you know, as any legal title holder would have, you have, uh, you can take the depreciation on the property, um, you know, have all the other capital expenditures, all of that good stuff you can, uh, you can, uh, use to your advantage. Finally, interest rates on owner occupied homes. If any of you have a loan, a commercial loan right now through, uh, through, through a lender, you know that your interest rates are, uh, are substantially higher than an owner-occupied mortgage is. Uh, so right now, uh, it's perfect time for you guys to, to really start thinking about buying subject to because we are, I mean, we're coming off of all-time low. I mean, right now, the money that lenders are lending is essentially free. It's free money. And... I can say that because if, if we hedge that against inflation, what the inflation rate is on a yearly basis, uh, inflation by far outpaces what these interest rates are being secured at right now. So um, your, your interest rates are always, always going to be lower on 90% uh, of the time they're going to be lower on owner-occupied homes. All right. There's not, there aren't many pitfalls to own a home uh, that you've purchased subject to, but if you don't like owning a home, well, guess what? <laughs> then, you, you know, you're responsible for all aspects of the property. Uh, when you take legal title, you're responsible for insurance, taxes, all the repairs, maintenance, grass cut, all of that stuff. You're responsible for all of it. Okay. So uh, none of that is left to the seller when you take legal, legal title. HOA dues. I forgot that one. Hey, this is um, this one is kind of a slippery uh, bullet point. 
because there is there is actually a way that you can pull equity out of out of a deal, but it's a very very <laughs> it's going to be very tough to find somebody who's going to who would be willing to lend. Let's say the house needed repairs and you wanted to do that through a secured uh, second mortgage. It's going to be tough to find that person. Uh, we actually have a inside our inside our coaching program. Uh, this was one of the things that we uh, we really really focused on because a lot of people simply don't get into this business or even use a strategy because they know that they can't do this. Well, so what we did was we went out, uh, we secured a bunch of private lenders um, that actually do this for us that are happy to take second position. And so right now we're looking at just a little over a million dollars that we've got available to us for our students. Who has ever heard of the do on sale clause? Man. All right. So you're going to hear a lot about this as well. When you go out there and you start researching subject two after this uh, presentation, you're going to hear all kinds of things about how the do on sale clause, uh, you know, about how you need to protect yourself with the do on sale clause. You just all, all this different, different information, it's going to confuse you. So I'm going to clear that up for you today right here. So what is the due on sale clause? The due on sale clause is a provision written into every single deed of trust or mortgage that is recorded with the county. You'd be hard pressed to find any mortgage or deed of trust that does not contain this provision. This allows a lender to call a note due upon the transfer of legal title of a property if that transfer takes place without simultaneously paying off the note at the time of that transfer. So everybody clear on that? Everybody good? You, you, transfer that, you transfer that deed into another entity or a trust or something like that, you have triggered the due on sale clause. So there, there was a law, it's called the Garn St. Germain Act of 1982. Um, and essentially it spells out nine different exemptions or exceptions to that, to that due on sale clause that lenders cannot enforce if they meet uh, any of these nine exceptions. You're, I've got a link here. Uh, as I said, you guys are going to get these slides. Uh, but essentially, as investors, we trigger the due on sale clause every single day. It happens every day in this business. Uh, it is not uncommon at all. I mean, I've done it literally. I've, I, you know, We're working on this deal down in San Antonio. This will be, be deal number 74. Okay. But I'm going to show you a trick on how to avoid the due on sale clause. All right, this is it. Keep watching. Make the payments. Very simple. Like the green. Number one reason that notes get called is because payments are not being made. Um, I've only ever known one person that has ever had a, a note called due or that uh, the due on sale was actually, uh, was enforced. And it's later find out, you know, I was like, man, I just can't believe, I was trying to find reasons why, I was like, what is going on? I can't believe they would do that. And I actually had an, uh, I was actually paying on a mortgage with that same mortgage company. It was Aquin at the time. And uh, come to find out, he wasn't making his payments. He was not making his payments. So, you want to avoid the due on sale clause, 
uh, just simply make the payments. The due on sale clause is very rarely, if ever, um, enforced. I mean, it is, it is just, this is the number one reason for, for, for something like that to happen to you. So uh, I don't care what anybody tells you, 99.95% of the time, you're never, this is never going to be an issue for you. So don't worry about it. Marketing. Um, now I have a, this, this actually, this, this is kind of a stripped down group of slides because uh, we're, we're limited on time, but this section, uh, when I give this at a, at a weekend, uh, to give this presentation at a weekend, uh, uh, seminar or something like that, this marketing section alone takes an entire day. If any of you are marketing, here's what I can, here's what I can, the, the best piece of advice that I can give you. If you are actively marketing right now, number one, all of those dead leads, let me make sure I'm not, uh, yeah. All of those dead leads that you previously thought that you couldn't uh, make a deal out of, go back and follow up with those leads. Those deals with no equity in them that you thought, uh, you know, I can't make a deal out of this because there's no spread. I can't make any money off of this thing. You can absolutely make money off of this is a, this is a this is the follow up is a very very uh, important and active aspect of my business this is how we this is how we go through and we uh, um, you know once a year or so we go through our leads and uh, we just revisit them because people's minds change all the time and so um, with marketing definitely I know we're not I know we don't have the marketing slide up here but with marketing go through your old leads and, and revisit those. Reach back out to those sellers. Number two, the leads that you have coming in, um, the leads that you have coming in require that you, doesn't absolutely require you to do this, but this is, this is what we do. We always think creatively first. Most of the time, when a lead comes in the door, our immediate thought is, okay, we've got, we've got to have this spread. We've got to have this. We're going to go out and we're going to make this cash offer. We flip-flop it. We do exactly the opposite, especially if it's got a mortgage on it. If it's got a mortgage on it, 100%, we are going to try and make that seller our financier, first of all, because the deal's already funded, right? So, uh, Approach every deal with a creative mind first. It takes a, a little bit of a mind shift to, to get there um, because our natural instinct, I think through all the social media and the posts and pretty much everything uh, that we're taught in all these seminars is, well, how, you know, how are you going to flip it? How are you going to make this, make this money without, a, without the spread? Think creatively first and, uh, and it can be done on most deals if you have a seller who's, who's open to that. Understand that the deal has already be fun, uh, been funded. I've touched on this a little bit, but if you can get that through your head and accept that the money's already there, it's just waiting for you to go and grab it. You know, it's just waiting for you to uh, build that rapport with the seller and the trust with the seller that you need um, in order to to uh, to take that to take that note. So start with the seller first. And then again, shift your focus to building a rapport and trust with that seller. And that's, that's really, 
that's really the secret sauce to all of this is trust and rapport. That is it, 100%. You know, I, when, I, uh, when I first started doing these deals, I mean, I was awful, absolutely awful at talking to people. Um, so this, this strategy or, 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 or thinking creatively like this, it does require you to, to know what you're doing. It requires you to know what you're talking about. And so once you fully understand it, you are able then to uh, go out and speak intelligently to these sellers about this process. I was on the phone this morning with a, with a, a lady locally here in St. Louis for 25 minutes. And in that time, we were able to come to terms on a subject to deal. And we'll close that in March, mid-March. If you guys, uh, if you would text this, text CALC, C-A-L-C, to 636-205-1330. Um, I have a uh, subject to calculator. It's, I designed it specifically for subject to deals. And it's, it's just an, it's an Excel template is what it is. So every time you double click it, it will open up a brand new sheet for you, a fresh sheet. And it's strictly for subject to deals. And it's got four different exit strategies at the bottom of it. Uh, there's, no, there's no offer generator or anything like that. It's strictly for you to use when you're doing your due diligence on these properties. So I can give you a little bit of an idea about what your exit strategy is going to be. Uh, also, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think I set this up so that you guys get a link to these slides as well. So go ahead and text that if you're, uh, if you're wanting this information. Everybody good? Everybody got it? Give me a thumbs up. All right. That'll be live for a while. So um, I'll, send these, I'll send these slides over to you, Ryan. Yeah, I'll put that in the chat real quick too. Okay. Uh, my criteria. Now, <clears throat> this is my criteria for buying a house subject to. Um, it's, it's very, very general. Uh, I do have some some uh, some more in-depth requirements depending on the on the market, the state of the market, depending on the area, uh, and things like that. Uh, but this is a very general um, line of questioning that you can ask yourself. Number one is, can the house pay for itself, and how much can it afford to pay? So, you know, if you get into a deal and you run that you run the calculations through that calculator and you see that um, you know, you see that you're going to come, come up short on your monthly payment by a couple bucks. Well, obviously that house isn't paying for itself. And then how, and if it, if it is paying for itself, is it, if it's covering the note and there's some left over, what is that? How much is left over? How much can it afford to pay you? So for me, I set a minimum uh, monthly cash flow standard. All right, so can I get the deed for little to no money out of pocket? Uh, in many cases, like I said before, I do, I do, I don't spend a lot of money. I think the most I've ever pulled out of my own pocket was eight thousand dollars to buy one of these one of these properties. Uh, now, there are going to be different ways to to avoid pulling money out of your own pocket. Like I do have a handful of of lenders that lend on these things. Um, but in some cases, I, like I said, I actually get paid to take the, take over these, these properties. 
will any repairs move me, move me into negative equity territory? And I should amend this. How much is that? How much will that hurt? How much, how far into negative equity territory am I willing to go? Uh, my general rule is I will buy homes in negative equity with negative equity uh, up to about 3%. That's generally where I'm at. Uh, sometimes if it's in a really good appreciating market, uh, I would be willing to go higher than that if I know that the, uh, that the market's trajectory is, is up. So, um, you know, that, that would be something that you need to be really careful about. Um, but still, I would still never buy it if it's not cash flowing. I'm okay with negative equity. It's just got to be cash flowing. And also, if it's moving into negative equity territory, it has to have very little. I mean, it has to be almost moving ready. Uh, maybe, maybe paint and carpet. That's about it. Is there any front end income? So how am I gonna dispose of this property? And am I gonna be paid when I dispose that property, dispose of that property? Uh, for me, I was into lease options uh, quite a bit. That's all I did. Uh, I, have I have since then, uh, we actually were selling off our last three lease options. Uh, they're all three, uh, within a month, they should all be gone. And I've moved straight into owner financing. I actually owner finance people. What comes with owner financing? Usually larger down payments. So um, oftentimes when I do owner finance somebody, I do get a nice sizable down payment up front. Is there a monthly spread? This isn't, this wouldn't be called real estate investing if there wasn't a monthly spread. So it's gotta be there. Is there a spread between the purchase price and the end sales price? Again, um, you know, you could live with one of these. And if this question confuses anybody, let me know. But um, you can live with, you can live with only, you can live with two of these things, but you must have one. You must have the monthly spread. The house has to be able to pay for itself. I have been known, uh, not very often, but I have been known to go out and purchase a property that has no equity in it. And I know it's not really going to appreciate in that particular uh, area or that particular market. And so I will simply purchase that home for, for whatever the agreed upon price. And then I will resell that home for that same price, uh, you know, plus whatever closing costs might be. Now, I've not made any money on that. I've not made a spread on that but I have made sure that I have a monthly, I have monthly cash flow, my minimum monthly cash flow on it. All right. All right, example criteria for buying subject two. Uh, we work in areas um, where we have the largest buyer pool. Or we work in a demographic with the largest, largest buyer pool. And that's obviously uh, middle class, middle to middle upper class um, homes. So, uh, also, you know, if you're you're looking for uh, kind of you know hot or semi hot markets as well. So that's where you're, um, you know, the places where properties are selling. Uh, that's where that's where we're buying houses at. No different than any other any other investor. We got to have good schools. 
good schools are super, super important. Um, probably you, you, you know, you want to, I would definitely wouldn't go below a C, a C grade school. Um, you, this, this right here is, is what sells houses is locations, great locations sell houses. And then, uh, of course we, we'd like to have a relatively low crime rate. Uh, there's plenty of research out there that, uh, you can go out and, um, look at that information. Here is what you see here is exactly what I offer on. And I, and after I tell you this, you're going to understand why I am able to beat out all of the, all of the wholesalers out there that are, or other investors that are um, having trouble buying houses or having their offers rejected. My offers range from 90 to 95% of current fair market value, which fair market value is going to be, um, it's going to be, it's, it's, well, let's just call it, it's appraised value. Uh, it's going to be, it's um, ARV minus repairs. That's essentially what fair market value is. And I'll buy it 90 to 95% if the property is occupied. That is a very enticing offer for somebody who lives in the property, but is super motivated to sell. If the property is vacant, I will offer 80 to 85% uh, of the fair market value. And obviously if a house is vacant, there's a little more urgency to, at least, at least in my eyes, a little more urgency to get rid of a house if it's sitting vacant. I think a vacant house is one of the, one of the worst. It terrifies me. For me, now this is not for everybody else, uh, but for me, the area must have a buyer pool that can, that where there's, where there are good jobs, and the buyer pool can afford at least a 10% down payment because remember I do owner financing on my, as my exit strategy. Um, this does not apply if you know, you're doing rentals or if you're in a rental area uh, or if you're doing lease options. Generally lease options don't get a, you don't usually get a, uh, uh, as much of a, an option payment as you do with uh, down payment from owner financing. Okay, yeah, so good point here. I forgot to put this in here. This may exclude many first-time home buyers. Uh, a lot of first-time home buyers simply do not have a 10% down payment. That's what those government programs are for. And so, um, which is kind of a good thing because if you, if you think about it, if you've got, uh, if you've got people that have owned a, prop, owned a home before, uh, they're a little more experienced in uh, and how it works and, and, you know, they're, they're okay with, um, you know, they're, they're taking on the property. They're doing all the, all the repairs, all the maintenance, everything. So um, this strategy would exclude a lot of those first time home buyers. This has actually changed my minimum monthly cash flow used to be 250. It's now 300. Uh, I can get that pretty easily in my market. So um, I would say that the first, that first major bullet point is pretty much non-negotiable. And I think that's probably where uh, each of you really would should consider um, adopting those, um, you know, maybe even into that second bullet point if you're gonna, if you're gonna look at subject two. But definitely those first four uh, small, smaller bullet points, I mean, those are a must. I mean, it just is, unless you're, you know, Unless you're buying, uh, you know, like uh, really, really cheap houses in, in rental areas, which is okay too. 
the crack shacks. Yeah. <laughs> My negative equity criteria, the house has got to be moving ready. I've already talked about this, possibly flooring. It's got to be great schools and it got to be great locations, period. Like I just can't get into deals where um, that are going to be hard to move. So uh, if I'm already taking that risk, moving into negative equity territory. I'll go 3% negative equity max, $250 a month cash flow, and a historical growth trend in that neighborhood or in that market. When not to buy subject to. This is probably even more important than actually going out and buying subject to. Uh, there, is a, there is a saying in the subject to community that just because you can buy something subject to does not mean that you should all the time. So number one, when you have problems with the seller, if they are unmotivated or if a seller gives you any idea during your, you know, your first couple initial uh, conversations that they are going to become litigious on, on you. Like, you know, they may some say something like, um, well, my sister's a lawyer or, uh, you know, I'll have her go over this or if, um, you know, if this goes bad, I, you know, I'm, here's going to be the, uh, you know, I'll take you to court. Just avoid, just avoid those people. That's, that's my, uh, that's my general rule, because as I said before, you are, this is a long-term relationship that you're, that you're getting into here. Uh, more than likely, I like to hold on to these properties. And so um, I just don't deal with litigious people. If there are problems with the house, oh, and uh, unmotivated for any reason, uh, I just, you know, I would, uh, I would still make them an offer, but I definitely, uh, I definitely wouldn't want to do a subject to deal with somebody who's, who's not motivated. They're going to turn around more than likely, and they are going to be just a huge pain for you later on. So um, they've got to be completely 100% on board with you. Uh, I like to say that I, I, I need to make them a part of my team. They need to be on my team. The next one, problems with a house. Um, if you've got a subject to deal, a lot of times these things have really, really thin margins anyway. So if there's a, there's a, a property you're looking at buying subject to, but it needs a bunch of work, um, obviously that's going to put you into, uh, into negative equity territory and uh, it's going to be really, really risky for you. Uh, stick with these decent houses. If you've got a really crappy location, um, I mean that, and that's a very broad, um, very broad statement. There's, uh, there's situations with geography. There's situations with uh, the neighborhood itself. Um, but if you got a bad location, I would avoid it. Problems with the numbers, and here's, I forgot I put this in here as well. Don't buy a sub. Don't buy subject to just because you can. The numbers always must work in your favor, period. Because remember, if, if those numbers don't work in your favor, you've made a promise to this seller that you are gonna be making those payments. And so, um, you know, the house always has to pay for itself. Um, I do wanna go back to the very top, uh, dealing with, with the sellers. Um, if I haven't, if I haven't rammed it down your throat enough, uh, this is not something that you want to rely on your on your sales skills. If you are a uh, 
you know, if you, if you're a salesman and you're trying to go in and do the, you know, do the hard sale with these folks, that's not the strategy that, that, uh, that we, that we're looking for here, because as I said, these people need to be on your team. They need to be, you need to be, uh, lockstep with these folks and, um, uh, leave the sleazy sales, sales tactics at home. It's just not a good way to, uh, you know, if you end up selling them on this and then it turns out that they don't like what you sold them, they get seller's remorse. And then uh, next thing you know, you've got a real problem on your hands. Sorry, guys, I'm kind of back and forth here because I moved this, moved this little uh, screen down here. Uh, I'm not going to get too, too in-depth with this. Uh, just want you to understand um, that there are a couple of ways that you can actually purchase these properties. And um, one of those ways is through a trust. Now I buy, I wasn't completely sold on trusts when I first got into this until, because I was, I was actually putting all of my properties into its own, each one of those into its own LLC, which is, is something that I still recommend if you're going to use LLCs. Um, but with trusts, um, there's, they're so flexible and they are so, um, there's so much that you, that you can do with them. Um, things that I, I just don't, I just don't have time to get into, uh, tonight. But, um, when I went to, when I was putting all those properties in that, in my LLCs, one per, uh, one per property, one LLC per property. You know, in my state, you have to file a tax return on every single LLC that you create. So what is it? So what kind of problems did I create for myself? I had 21 different LLCs, 21. That tax bill, she cut me a break. That tax bill was in the range of about $8,000 on these. And for, you know, for, for us, that was a huge hit, enormous. I don't have to worry about that with a trust. Today, I have, I actually have two LLCs um, and that's only because of uh, the way that they're taxed. One is taxed at a different, a different one's taxed at um, short-term capital gains and self-employment. The other I use strictly for long-term capital gains. Um, so I have two LLCs, but you really only need one. Um, I know that a lot of people go through, uh, go through some of these programs where they go out and they build this big elaborate uh, corporate structure, which is fine. It, it works. Uh, but if you're just starting out, you need one LLC and then learn how to learn how to learn how to use a trust. Honestly, it's, it's one of the greatest tools. It's probably the last, it's probably our last safe um, bastion, if you will, like in the real estate world, a trust is just a fantastic tool to use. Uh, let's see what we got here. All right. <clears throat> Number one, let's step back. Everybody understands I'm not an attorney here. I'm not advising you. All right. That's my little disclaimer. Should you buy in a trust or should you buy in an LLC? Hey, Ryan, how are we doing on time, by the way? You're good, man. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Uh, there are benefits to both. Both are relatively easy to set up. Generally, the tax consequences are about the same. Um, it just depends other than now I say the tax consequences, not the CPA consequences. I don't know if you guys have to file tax returns on every LLC in Texas or not, 
Um, yes, but, we did. Okay, well, unless they're passed through. Yeah, generally, um, the tax ramifications are are exactly the same whether you set up a trust or an LLC. Both methods are 100% insurable, although I'm biting my tongue a little bit because today I got notified that, uh, and what I mean by insurable is both title insurance uh, and hazard insurance. Uh, but I am biting my tongue a little bit today. I had my very first um, refusal uh, for to have a uh, title policy underwritten on a subject two deal I'm doing here in St. Louis. But both methods are generally 100% insurable. And, and I had nothing but uh, positive results from either method, other than the CPA. Uh, LLCs, uh, they're legal entities to, created to provide uh, limited personal liability. Uh, they must be operated correctly. Uh, you have to have an operating agreement, all of that good stuff. Uh, they're recognized in all 50 states. Uh, process varies from state to state but they, it doesn't matter where you're at. They're relatively easy to create. It's just uh, some of the fees associated with them are gonna, definitely gonna vary from state to state. I got, a, I got two students in California that uh, I have advised, please do not start your LLC in California because they are, uh, it's, it's 800 bucks a year just to, just to maintain it. So, oh, there it is, yeah. Um, so yeah, these are the different fee structures, reporting requirements and ownership requirements. You may have to have a registered agent. I can act as my own registered agent in Missouri. Um, anyway, that all this information will be out on your Secretary of State's website. Uh, if any of you are doing foreign deals and you have Canadian investors, uh, not foreign deals, uh, virtual deals, and you have Canadian investors, just understand that uh, Canadians investing in the U.S. are subject to double taxation if they use an LLC. This actually should say or a trust. So they can't avoid it. Uh, advantage of using an LLC limits personal risk. Uh, very easy to set up. Pass through taxation in most cases. Management flexibility. If you are a uh, manager managed LLC, meaning that you you know, it's a single member LLC, but you, let's say you want to bring somebody else in. Uh, you have a lot of flexibility in that operating agreement to, uh, uh, to manage uh, how you, how you run your LLC. Definitely insurable. I think, I don't think any insurance company really has a, a problem insuring an LLC. And what do we got? Disadvantages, expense and hassle. So let's say that we are, um, let's say that we're buying a house. I don't know. Let's say that, let's say that we're buying a house. We decide that we want to put a, a property, whether it's subject to or not, we want to, we want to have an LLC um, created for that house that we've purchased in another state. Well, now some states are going to require you to register that, that LLC as a foreign, foreign entity. Some of them will, a lot of them have regulations on the books that there's an exemption for real estate. Um, now imagine multiply that by 10 or just imagine that in your own state, you have, you have 10 properties down in Corpus Christi. Uh, there's a lot of expense and a lot of hassle um, to keeping these things running. 
You got to track every single one of those, all the expenses in each one of them. Each one of them should have their own bank account. I mean, it gets really, really crazy. Registration fees or uh, keeping, keeping LLCs in good standing can get really expensive. Registered agent fees, uh, annual, annual filing fees. And for us, a separate tax, tax return for every single uh, LLC. This, this can get pretty detailed. I'm going to try and strip this down. Um, so what is a trust? In, in our world, we are talking about land trusts. There are only eight states that actually have statute, statutes on the books for land trusts. However, we can create in, other, in all of the other states, I do this in my own state, we can create revocable or grantor trust. They're, 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 uh, they're essentially living trusts. They're inter vivos trusts, okay? That's all inter vivos means. They are uh, they're revocable trusts that are set up exactly like a land trust. And so you have the same protections, you just can't call it a land trust. Now, that trust can be interpreted uh, in the, you can, you can interpret that trust based upon the rules of one of those states that does actually have land trust statutes. Um, you see how, I, see how I can get a little, a little convoluted, uh, but, but yeah, in, the, in our world, we're talking about land trusts and it's nothing more than a contractual agreement. This is not an entity. This is a contractual agreement between a grantor and a grantee that allows the grantee who is going to be the trustee to take title to and hold the asset in trust on behalf of the grantor. The grantor is, is going to become the beneficiary of that trust. They are gonna move into that position. So there are three positions in a, well, there are two primary positions in a trust. That's the trustee and the beneficiaries. And if you have ever done any kind of uh, estate planning, uh, you've heard these terms thrown around. Uh, but it, the point is that it's a, it's a contract. It's a contract between a grantor and a grantee uh, that the grantee will hold title. It's usually a third party, outside third party that is going to hold title to this property. So that removes you or your LLC as legal title holder to the property and it, it, it transfers that to the trustee, a, an outside independent third party. You're still going to maintain control of that property because you are going to be, you or your LLC, your, your entity is going to be the beneficiary of that trust. All right. Now I say here that trusts themselves are not taxed. I, I only say that because trusts actually can be taxed, but the way that we set it up, it's, it all has to do uh, with your trust agreement. Okay. So how your trust agreement is laid out will determine whether or not that trust will be required to go to go out and get a, uh, uh, an EIN or a, or a TIN, the taxpayer identification number. Uh, taxes are passed through to the beneficiaries, which in this case would be your LLC, or uh, if you're, you know, maybe you're buying this home to live in yourself, uh, it would be you. Uh, beneficiaries can be real persons or uh, many different flavors of corporate entities, and there's a list of those entities. 
Yeah, I, I probably, guys, I'm probably just going to breeze right through this one, but uh, essentially you have a few players inside of a trust. One is the trustee. Um, something happens to that trustee, they name a successor trustee, someone who's going to take over. It's the same as ben with beneficiaries. They're generally going to, uh, they are generally going to uh, name successor beneficiaries. Uh, you have a position in there. It's not used all the time. Uh, we only use it in certain circumstances, but the position is called the director. And what the director does, sort of, uh, a director is sort of the same thing as, uh, as a manager would be in an LLC operating agreement. So he gets to direct which way that, that LLC is, is going to move forward. The director is the same way. The director has he basically strips all of the rights, not rights, but all of the um, direction from the beneficiaries and it's and put on his shoulders. So there are definitely scenarios where this can be really, really helpful, um, especially in Texas. And somebody wants to remind me, I'll show you how this, if we have time at the end of this, I'll show you how a director, uh, you could do a really, really clean sale down in Texas uh, using this strategy. This is a very small list of, <laughs> of advantages of using a trust. I could probably talk for literally, I could probably talk for, for a day about, about the advantages of using a trust. Uh, but number one is anonymity. And when we say anonymity, we don't just mean that, you know, you go out to, uh, you know, you're building a list, let's say, and you see that these trusts are, are these trusts start showing up as you're building this list and you, you try and filter that you know, we generally try and filter those trusts out. A lot of us do uh, to get to where we can find at least an LLC or something like that to send mail to. Anonymity is way more than that. It's a, it's a what you got to understand is that this is a this is a private contract between parties. So once that property is transferred into this trust, everything that happens after that. Uh, if that trust is, if that property is still an asset of the trust, of the, of the, uh, of the trust and controlled by the trustee, everything that happens with that property afterwards is totally private. A trust does not get recorded. A a trust there's there are some states that re require you to um, to file what's called a certificate of tr of trust or uh, acknowledgement. I've seen a couple other names. I've seen a couple other names that it goes by, but everything behind everything that's in that trust happens in private. The government doesn't know about it. Uh, nobody outside, nobody in the public can see it. It is 100%. My trusts are sitting in a filing cabinet behind me here. And I can go in there and I can manipulate and do anything I would like to do in these trusts. That's legal, of course. Um, and that's what we mean by anonymity. It's not just hiding your name as owner of a property. That's not just what it means. There's so much more involved in it. Uh, privacy, again, I uh, those two kind of go hand in hand, um, but everything that you do in that trust is 100% private. They are extremely flexible. Uh, there are things that you could do inside a trust and that because it's private, you would never be able to do without either paying fees or, uh, you know, uh, paying the government off or, you know, whatever it is, paying their ransom. 
Um, there are tons of things that you can do in, inside a, inside a trust that are super, super flexible. They're versatile. You can use them everywhere. Uh, like I said, like, like I said, at the beginning of this little uh, section, uh, your beneficiary does not have to be an individual. It can be a corporate entity. So let me just tell you how we have our setup. Every property that I buy gets put into a trust. I print, I, I don't know if you guys can see it. I have a little laser printer right here, right behind me, I'm touching it. Every single property that I buy goes into a trust that is printed off of this printer. It costs me 20 cents maybe for ink and paper. So it goes into this trust. Um, the only thing that I'm really paying for is my title work and, um, and the transfer, the deed transfer. Inside that trust, I'm gonna name my trustee. A lot of times it's just me personally. And I, I do recommend people name the trustee as a personal, uh, as, a, as an actual human. Um, but the beneficiary who pays the taxes in that trust is my corporate entity. It is my LLC. And so essentially money comes in, uh, the taxation is, is filtered through that trust and the LLC pays the taxes on it. But I have one LLC. That's, my, that's the point I'm trying to make. I have one LLC for all of these different properties. All right. Uh, this, is, this is not a correct statement. Uh, there is no registering a, a trust unless you're in a state that requires you to submit a... Uh, 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 acknowledgement of trust or a certificate of trust or something like that. And really all that is, is, is letting the, letting the county know who to contact um, if, if they have questions about, uh, you know, about title or something like that. Uh, but quite honestly, most of the time that changes. So, uh, and there is a little bit of upkeep. Um, but again, that is all determined by what is inside your trust agreement. All right. I know it seems like we're not talking about subject two, but this comes in, this comes in, this is a huge, a huge factor when we're buying subject two properties. Um, and this all goes back to, uh, this all goes back to that Garn St. Germain Act of 1982. So go out and read up on that. Uh, it's a really, really interesting read. As it turns out, banks actually like to make money too. And so, you know, back in the 80s, uh, when interest rates were, when they jumped up to 17 to 25%, they had all of these, um, they had all of these loans out there that were really, really sitting at really, really low interest rates. They were like, you know, three, four, five. Well, the banks realized that a lot of those notes were transferred. And so what they started doing was they started, uh, they started enforcing the due on sale clause and foreclosing on these properties so that then they could turn out, they could uh, foreclose on that property, turn around and relend on that property at 17% versus the three, four, five, six that they were lending at. It was predatory. So just a little, uh, just a little history lesson there. Disadvantages of using a trust. Obviously, if none of you have ever used a trust or have never heard of this strategy, there is a learning curve with it. I mean, it is like, uh, it took me a while to, to really grasp it. 
grasp the concept and grasp the different positions inside of trust. Um, and to this day, traditional title companies, they generally have a problem understanding these things, even more so than, than buying, buying creatively itself. If you're doing it in a trust, you've really thrown them for a loop. So it pays to have a very good, uh, very good title company that understands these. Can be really intimidating. Um, it can be a tough sell. I, I say that because a lot of people, what they'll do, uh, you know, a seller will ask you, hey, um, what's the process here? How, how does this how does this work? And I will generally say, well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we come to terms and we're gonna we're gonna transfer that property into a trust. And then though, and sometimes, not very often, but sometimes they will they will want to dig into the the structure of the trust. They want to know about a trust. Well, as soon as you do that, you open up a bag of worms, and they just they just they're like a deer in the headlights. They just freeze up. So, um, if you have to get into the weeds with them, uh, they it's going to be generally a tough sell for you. And you may end up switching to just putting it in an LLC. Insurability. This is this is absolutely happening to me right now. Uh, I I could show you the text messages. Assets inside a trust are 100% insurable. The problem is finding an insurance company that knows how to set up a homeowner's policy correctly. Now this applies to a title policy as well. Uh, so, and every insurance company, as far as homeowners hazard insurance goes, every insurance company is going to have uh, a different way that they like to do things. But there's a there's a proper way to do these things that. I do. I simply don't give them the option. Uh, I know how they need to be set up, and you know I just don't give them the option to uh, to to force themselves, <laughs> force their opinions on me. So um, anyway, yeah, you, you're going to have some some problems for sure, especially if you're using like um, some of your run of the mill standard insurance companies. You might have some problems uh, setting up an insurance policy. All right, let's see. All right, I'm going to make this one quick too. Uh, how to talk to sellers with these things. This is a, this is probably the most besides insurance. This is probably the most uh, requested, uh, you know, uh, requested question that I get. And honestly, I, I really don't have a really genuine, uh, like, cookie cutter response to this because quite frankly we all have different uh different talking styles different mannerisms all that good stuff so uh, this is something that you really needed to, to uh you know you're just going to have to go through this you're just going to have to learn how to talk to sellers about this stuff um i will tell you first of all some of the things to avoid do not get technical with these sellers on this stuff. It, this, and then you can explain it exactly like this if you're considering doing this. You explain it as Mr. or Mrs. Seller, this is a normal sale. We're not doing anything outside of, out of the norm. The only thing that's, the only, the, the one thing that is not uh, traditional is that financing that's there, we're gonna start making payments on that loan. That's it. 
and then you just don't want to get super technical with them. They, they, most people, I would say, you know, first of all, you know, as real estate investors, we're looking at maybe one, 2% of the entire population are, is our, is, is our target market, right? Now take a, a little bitty fraction of that, of that one or 2%, those are the people that are doing subject to deals. And so this is not well known by the general public. It's just not, it's not something that they're used to. So don't get technical with them. Don't fake it till you make it. This is one area I would generally say, you know, I, I'm the type of person, you know, I jump off a cliff and uh, figure out the, figure out how to deploy my chute later. Um, this is one area where um, you have to be very, very truthful and you have to be hundred um, percent open and honest with them. If you don't know something, let them know you don't know. Don't, don't try and jumble through it. They're going to, they're going to figure this out. They're going to figure out that you don't know what you're talking about, but this is definitely a, a subject that I would, um, if you're going to get into this, if you think that this would work for you, or this is a, this is going to benefit you, I would definitely study up on it for sure. Never, ever make a promise. You know, you can't keep, uh, it can get you, not only is it going to get you a bad reputation, but it can actually get you in a lot of legal trouble as well. So keep that in mind. And this is, this is not, uh, this is not just with subject to deals. Obviously that's with any deal you do. Here's another thing that, um, that I don't do. A lot of times we'll get a question, well, how long is this loan going to stay in my name before you pay it off? And generally speaking, and I actually did this this morning, generally speaking, I do not like to give a timeline. I certainly am not going to put it in writing. Um, the problem with, the problem with promising to pay off somebody's mortgage in a certain amount of time is that you have no idea uh, what the market conditions are gonna be when you go to sell that property or when you wanna pay that loan off. It may be, uh, you know, it may be a seller's market and you can get rid of it really quickly. But if it's a buyer's market, that thing's gonna sit on the, it, it may never sell, you never know. And so I, I just don't like to put those type of constraints on myself and, uh, yeah, I won't get into it, but you know, if you, Ryan, you're a, you're a George Antone guy. So, uh, you, you know, uh, you know, putting those type of constraints, I actually, I actually calculate a loan constant based on how long I get, I get one of these, uh, one of these deals for, cause that's, even though that's not written in paper, if I do have to pay off a loan in five years, well, my loan constant is through the roof. Right. So, um, anyway, I'm not going to dive too much into that. So I, if you can, I mean, obviously, if you can, um, sorry, I forgot I had anima animation on here. If you can, try not to give them a timeline. Just say, you know, explain it just like that. Hey, I would love to be able to give you a timeline. I'd like to get this done in a couple of years, but I just have no idea. I can't, I can't foresee the future. Uh, how to make your life a living hell. Um Make promises you can't keep. Reserve your very best sales pitch for your meeting with the seller. Be a closer. Guilt trip your seller into signing a contract. Scare them into doing a deal with you. Beg them to do a deal with you. And uh, this, this actually should be number one. Do a deal with a litigious seller. 
that is how you're going to make your life a living hell. How to make your life super simple. Speak the truth. Be prepared. Like I said before, understand this entire process. When the question comes up, and it will, for sure, does my name stay on the loan? That's what they're going to ask you. When that comes up, you got to be totally honest, 100%. It's, your name's going to stay on the loan. Yep. And then you can turn around and deaden that blow a little bit with, uh, you know, you may be, maybe they haven't made payments in a while, and now you're going to catch those payments up, and you're going to start making payments on that loan. Well, now you're building their credit. So you can focus on something like that. Focus on avoiding foreclosure. Um, talk about the speed of closing. You know, if they are in a time crunch or if, or if time is of the essence here, maybe they've got an auction date. You know, you can, I can get these done in three days. In fact, I can get these done in a day, but I might have to go back and do a title search after I buy it. So, uh, and then of course, debt relief. This is one of the things that, uh, that I, I generally say that kind of puts my sellers at ease. I always tell them this is going to be a tough battle. There's a lot to do here, uh, but there is a great reward at the end of all of this. And this is, this is absolutely paramount here. Like this is something that uh, I just have no, I have no leeway in at all. And that is making them a part of your, of your team. There are, there are going to be things that they have to do in this process. Right. Um, so you don't tell them they're going to do it. You invite them to do it. That's how, that's how you bring them onto your team. You ask them to do it. And it's not, um, sometimes it's not an easy conversation, but if they're not a part of my team, or if I get the feeling that, uh, that there's any trepidation about moving forward, I, I just go ahead and cancel the deal. I just won't do it. Okay, so everybody understands that a, a mortgage is nothing but a recorded lien. It is a voluntary lien that's, that's placed, um, it's placed on the property. Um, a lot of people don't know, or some of you that have heard about buying subject to um, may have the impression that you're just taking over that first, that first mortgage. You're, you're taking on that first mortgage and uh, you're making those payments. Um, one of the things that uh, we like to do differently is we actually look at when we pull title and we have a bunch of liens on title, we will actually we will actually use this to our advantage. Uh, this generally doesn't work with state uh, state tax liens or federal tax liens. We kind of stay away from those most of the time. But liens can be super advantageous to you. And I say that because you can actually double dip with liens. So let's say that you're going to buy a house subject to, and um, you run title, you find out there's these mechanic liens, there's maybe some utility liens on the property, um, mostly, mostly things that aren't super liens. And if you, you know, super liens actually stay attached to the property no matter what. Even still, you pull all those liens and you look at the deal and you go, okay, is this property still going to be able to pay for itself if I take these liens on? If so, okay, I'm going back and I'm talking to my seller and I'm going to tell my seller, uh, I don't know why I'm getting that, but I just had to admit somebody. 
um, I'm going back and I'm talking to my seller and I'm saying, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, all of these liens have showed up, right? All, I got all these liens on this property. Now I am willing to take care of these liens. I'll actually still buy the house from you with these liens in place, but I'm gonna need a, a little bit of a discount to be able for my time and for, uh, for my time and for the money it's gonna cost me to take care of these liens. And then what I'm gonna do, once I settle that with the seller, I'm now gonna start contacting these lien holders. And I'm gonna say, hey, Mr. Lien Holder, I see you've got this, uh, this mechanics lien on 123 Main Street. Um, I'm, getting, I'm thinking about buying this house. Are you flexible on, on, that, on that lien? Can, if, you know, if we can come to an agreement, would you be flexible on how much I'm gonna pay, how much I can pay you for this lien? I don't think the deal is going to work if, if you're going to demand this full price. And so what have I done? I have negotiated on the seller side. I've negotiated that, that my purchase price down. And I've also gone in on my, um, with my lien holder and I have negotiated a suitable yet smaller lien payoff. Okay. So don't be afraid of liens. Um, there are certain liens you need to be very, very afraid of. And there are some that uh, maybe are, uh, can be borderline, um, but um, if it is a, an involuntary lien, uh, there's about a 50 to 60% chance that you can actually negotiate that lien. We negotiated an $80,000 Medicaid lien uh, here in St. Louis on a property I bought subject to. We negotiated an $80,000 Medicaid lien down to $8,000. It, it, it happens every single day. So and guess what? We made, a, we made a killing on that house. So don't be afraid of them. Uh, just do your due diligence on them. All right, guys. I know I went over a lot there. Um, <laughs> probably a lot to take in if, if you're not used to, uh, if you've never heard of this strategy before. Some of you that have heard of... Uh, have heard of this before and maybe some of you that have done it maybe hopefully you um, got a little bit out of it um, again this is all of our our social links but uh, if anybody's got any questions I am totally game I'm open If you have any questions, you can unmute yourself and ask Jeff. Sorry, I was muted. I was over here talking. <laughs> I beat you. Yeah. Hey, uh, nah, Jeff, I got one for you, man. Um, yeah. Back towards the beginning of the presentation, you were talking about how important follow-up is. Uh, do you have a specific system that you use to help you with that follow-up? I do. Uh, as um, we have a, it's, boy, that's, that's a, it's actually gets into the marketing side of it, but um, system wise, like tools, we use REI Blackbook, period. Um, it does everything we need. It's got everything, everything built right into it. It's just, I have used literally 20 to 25 different CRMs. REI Blackbook is the system that I use for my follow-up. Um, but as far as individual systems for following up with leads. Uh, we have, 
essentially we have we have a system for every type of scenario and that's that's the way we look at it so for example if um, i don't know let's just use absentee owners right with absentee owners maybe they've got a tenant in the property all right and um, maybe that tenant hasn't been paying for a while what we what we will do if a seller reaches out to us in that situation we have a program for for every type of scenario like that. So for absentee owners, we have a, um, a tenant advocacy program where our, our tenants, we will actually work with in tandem with the landlord, with the current owner and the tenants to get them moved out into another property. Okay, so, and then that's another opportunity. So if that's the case, uh, I'll just break that one down for you a little bit. If that were the case, we would talk to our landlord. We'd say, hey, We'd love to get this person out of here, but they're going to have problems where they're going. Like they're going to have problems in the next house that they're moving into. How can we guarantee that that next landlord is not going to have those problems? And so, I mean, you can have, uh, you know, you can negotiate that price down and say, hey, would you rather, uh, talking to the seller, would, how much more of this are you willing to put up with? Or would you rather you know, maybe come down on price a little bit, give us a little leeway so that we can then help this tenant move out, maybe pay that future landlord six months in advance or, or you know, or something like along those lines. So, um, so big picture, REI Black Book, uh, but we, inside REI Black Book, um, you know, we have all of these different systems set up for, for follow-up. <clears throat> work, workflows, right? Yeah, 100%, yep. 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 We utilize them down here too. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, we got one. Uh, oh, what's up? I, it's just crazy. I was actually, uh, I was actually looking through there today. I mean, I, I used to get really, really crazy inside our black book. I mean, I would, I would do things that, you know, quite honestly, I'm not sure that <laughs> maybe, maybe they did. I, I just, I'm not sure I'm I, I, that they have, would know some of the things that I was doing in there. I don't think, you know, cause I kind of, I kind of find different alternative ways to do things, but um, I've stripped it down quite a bit and just, just stuck to the basics on it. And um, honestly, it's just a super, super fantastic. I mean, the thing is fantastic. It's not a dialer like that. I don't do any cold calling anyway, but, um, but boy, the follow-up, I just don't, I just don't know of another tool that can yeah. do follow-up like not personalized follow-up like it can now the the marketing and then the the automated responses through the workflows and the call flows that, yeah. that's the thing about that system and, and damon uh who's the owner of aria blackwood he's even said it he goes the the system is only limited by your imagination on what that's you true. can draw up and the way that they keep improving it man it's i i don't know of, an, of a better one out there yeah. But uh, okay, we got a we got a question from Michelle. She asks, uh, "What is the process to start a sub two? Very very simple. It is uh, well the process the process is going to start first of all. The process starts with marketing. Everything starts with marketing. Um, now, I would I would definitely uh, I would definitely do your homework. Okay, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is there's a reason that that a lot of people don't do these It's because there's a there's a lot to know i mean um but if i if i could simplify it for you 
just by saying this is nothing but a normal sale. Okay. So, but the process with that for me is going to start with, with marketing. I've already been through the, I've already been through the training. I've already been through all the, uh, the good and the bad. So I've got the, I've got the, the, the knowledge to get that done. Um, but remember when I talked about, talked about mind shift or my uh, mindset um, and understand, and understanding that if you were to think, if you were to able, if you were to be able to think creatively first, before you started thinking about, um, you know, what you got to do to, to flip this house and all the numbers and going in and just throwing this cash offer on the wall, hoping that it sticks. Uh, if you were to flip the table, if you were to flip the coin and start thinking about, okay, where is this, where is the money right now? Where is the, where's what's happening with this right now? Is there a loan on this thing? You know, and we don't just get into sub two deals. We do owner finance deals. We do, I mean, we do it all. We do lease options. We do wraps, but, uh, if you can think in your mind, all right, where's the money at? Uh, flip the coin, understand that the money is already there. Don't worry about it. Just get the damn thing under contract and be done with it. You know? Um, so I would start with uh, continuing on with the marketing that you're doing, just working on your mind, flipping it and saying, hey, can I make the, Can I turn this into something creative? It's definitely going to be, um, well, not definitely, but it can be more lucrative for you to think that way. Yeah. So Michelle, I think what, um, what he's saying is true with marketing, but probably what you're asking just because I know you're already marketing and running into these, uh, situations contract, get them, get them. Once they agree, if you, if you know how to talk to them about sub two and you can explain it and they agree, then you're going to get them to sign a, a contract. Um, I do it with the Trek. I use a Trek and then uh, send that over to a, so most title companies down here are going to balk. I, there's a few that, that'll do uh, sub twos, but I, I just go to an attorney and they draw up all the disclosures about underlying liens and everything that the Texas property code requires. Um, so that's, probably where you'll start after you've done all your marketing and you've talked to a seller that agrees to let you take over their payments pretty much. Um, all right. So also earlier in it, in the presentation, you, I saw you said you wouldn't do, I think, or the most would be 3% on negative equity. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. What, what got you to that 3%? What, what's the significance of 3%? Well, it's just a, uh, it's just a baseline. That's all that it is. <clears throat> it's really going to depend upon the property. You know, if I've got a property that um, if I can, maybe it needs a little bit of work and that work is going to send me into negative equity, ter equity territory. Um, there, there are different factors, but if it's going to send me into negative equity, negative equity territory, I would like to keep it in that 3% range just because you know, now I'm, now I'm 3% above what the home's value is. It's going to take me a year to recapture that at least through inflation. So, I mean, I, I, it's just a baseline number. I mean, if the house is a super nice house in a great area, I'll, I'll go higher than that. Definitely. Right. Just got to catch. Cool. Cool. Thanks yeah. for clarifying. Um, 
I, I got, if no one else has asked, yeah, I don't see any other. I got two more. Um, so I know you were talking about with your trusts on how, how um, taxes were handled. Do you have to kind of, do you have to keep certain books or how does the accounting work um, for doing the taxes on these sub two deals? Well, our trust agreements are set up so that our beneficiaries are responsible for the taxes. Okay. So it's absolutely no different. I mean, obviously the way that, the way that we set it up is that I have two different bank accounts. I just prefer it that way because one of those accounts is going to be receiving uh, all of those funds that are going into that, that account are going to be short-term capital gains and um, uh, self-employment tax. I know that. So that's just an ease of accounting type of thing. I know you can do that in QuickBooks, but I'm not that smart. I'm not that, I'm not that good with QuickBooks. So I chose to have two accounts. Um, so, so to answer your question, the, the tax is no different. The LLC is paying the, the, the tax on that. Um, just depends on what type of tax they're paying. So it's just a simple pass-through. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Have, uh, did you ever, did you do these when you first started without using, I'm, I'm sure without a, a trust? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I was saying. I did. I had 21 different LLCs that, oh, that yeah. uh, at the end of that second year. Yeah. I, um, it was a nightmare. It was, <laughs> it's probably the reason why today I, I still have refused to learn, to learn, uh, my way around QuickBooks very well. It's just the worst. I don't, I, got, I don't blame you. Yeah, I've got a backlog of, uh, I think I'm behind by like four months. I have to go in and categorize all my, all my expenses right now. Oh, it's terrible. But uh, no, I'm the yeah. same way. It's, I finally, like a year or so ago, got a, got a good accountant that I just sent everything to you now. Um, so what's up with that director for a trust in Texas? All right. Well, let me give you a, uh, let me give you a scenario here. Let's say that, and this is, if, if we got wholesalers on, on the call, uh, this is very, very common. You get one of these leads in, you go in and you talk to the seller and, you know, it's one of those borderline leads. It's one of those borderline deals where you would be afraid to put it under contract because you probably, and you're probably certainly not going to close on it because there's a lot of risk there. It's that close. You know, it's that tight. So... <clears throat> What I like to do, um, if I can pick that property, and I'll tell the seller that, like, look, this thing is way too tight. I don't think you're going to be, be able to find a buyer for it. Good luck if you can, but if not, here's what I can offer you. Um, there's a, stay with me because there's a lot going on here. Uh, that director position, if that seller and I come to terms and I put this property into a trust, what I will then do is I will name myself as the director inside that trust. And remember the director is the one that takes the, takes the decision-making abilities of the beneficiaries and puts it on his shoulders. Now he can tell the trustee what to do and what papers to sign and all this stuff. So, so the director is, is really the man. So put this property in a trust. I name myself as the director now what I do is I go out and I market that property. I've officially purchased that property, right? Because it's, I've taken it subject to, because I've transferred into a trust, I'm now making those payments. Now what I'll do is I'll go out and I will find myself a buyer. 
I will present this deal to them and I'll tell them, hey, I can, and, and how I'm going to bring a buyer in, how I'm going to entice, his, entice him is I'm going to say, hey, I can give you this deal. Uh, I can, I can, you know, you can buy into, uh, buy into this, uh, into this trust. I won't use the word trust. I'll say partnership. Let's partner on this deal. You can get into it for 2,500 bucks. 2,500 bucks. You're going to have control of this property. These are just example numbers. I'm going to give you control of this property. You can go in and rehab it for 2,500 bucks. I'm going to give you 80% beneficial interest in this trust. Right? So now he's into this thing for 2,500 bucks. He's going to go in. He's going to bring the funds in to rehab that property. He's going to get it rehabbed. He's going to list it or whatever, you know, however he's going to sell it. When it sells, <clears throat> I've only get, I've only received 2,500 bucks. It's not a very big assignment fee. Right? So, but when it sells, he's going to get that. Yeah. He's going to get that 80%. I remain 20% beneficial interest. My LLC does in that trust. So now we have a true partnership where, you know, I'm getting paid on the back end. Yes, it's it's slower money, obviously, but everybody's the whole problem solved. Everybody's it's a win for everybody. We've got the sellers taken care of. Uh, I've now have my fee. My um, my buyer has a rehab property that he's got made his money off of. Uh, you can even get a little more creative with that, too. You can actually if you know, if uh, if there's. Of course, the deal, the deal has to fund it, but you can actually include, you can have as many beneficiaries in that trust as you want. So you can actually include your seller in that as well. Maybe they need 10% off the back end or something like that. So, so that's what I say when you, you can get so creative with these things. And by the way, there are no filings to do this. Uh, there's no, I mean, it's literally all just done in private. So the director is a is a uh, that's when I would use that that position. One of the scenarios I would use that position when I need to maintain control. Um, real quick, if we got time, I'll give you another quick scenario. Yeah. Um, we always see it. We always talk. We hear people talking about like wholesalers will be flipping subject to deals. Mm -hmm. They'll be getting a subject to deal under contract and they'll be flipping it. Okay, and then I'll address the Texas specific one too but they'll go and flip that deal. Well, that is a huge, huge liability. I mean, I would never even think of doing that. It's so dangerous. Um, we had that slide, how to make your life a living hell. That is how you do it right there. Is yeah. you flip a subject to deal. It's There's it's, a bunch of people here in Texas that do, they get them and then wholesale them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's ways to do it um, yeah. for sure. Um, but anyway- if I were going to do that, and I, this is what we teach our students, if we're going to do that, you better be willing to stay in that deal. You better be willing to to at least take responsibility for what you promise to the seller. And we do that by putting them, making them a director of the trust. If that, if that uh, beneficiary, the guy who, the guy or girl who's the beneficiary and is responsible for making those payments, they stop making those payments. The director gets to step in, remove them as beneficiary. And then go out and name another beneficiary, That's which, good. by the way, can really help uh, if we're talking about that deal that we, with the little $2,500 assignment fee that we just mm -hmm. talked about. Um, if that rehabber, your buyer that you sold it to, is going to rehab that property, if he stops making those payments, 
you get to pull him out, he's gone. Uh, and hopefully he hasn't stripped the whole house, gutted the house, but you get to go turn around and do that again for somebody else. You can do that. Right. As many days. Um, That's good. Last thing about this director thing, and then I'll, I'll shut up. Um, but in Texas, there is a really, really, you guys have, you guys cannot do, uh, you, you can, you can do lease options. You can't do contract for deed that I'm aware of anymore at all. Um, so this same strategy is how we are uh, selling homes, owner finance, to buyers in Texas. This exact same strategy. So essentially what we're doing is we are putting a property into, uh, into a trust. We are naming ourselves as the director. And then our buyer, our owner finance buyer, becomes the beneficiary in that trust. There's, there's a couple moving parts in there, but essentially that's what happens. It is the absolute cleanest way. There's a UCC one filing that's got to be done, uh, but it is the absolute cleanest way to do that. It's, uh, uh, and we don't have to mess with mortgage wraps. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Huh. So that UCC one fi financing statement is what protects you, right? Yeah. 100%. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's totally doable. Um, we're closing, well, we've got one under contract in San Antonio right now. Um, if I if I can think about it, we record all of our calls. If I can think about it, I'll, I'll document it for you guys and and, uh, and maybe send it over to you, have you take a look at it. That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, uh, we had a couple questions pop up. Well, yeah, we got a couple minutes. Uh, let's see, Irma asked, prior to subject to agreement, do you make a decision to place the house into a trust and how do you handle oh, here the do on sell clause from the bank? I knew it was going to come up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I automatically use trust no matter what, no matter what I just, um, for the money, like I said, I've got my little printer right here. I print a trust right off of my printer. Um, and, and that's it. It's done. All I have to do is transfer, uh, transfer deed into that trust. Um, all right. I'm trying to, I'm going to try and figure out a way to, to, to explain this without getting too, too deep <clears throat> with the do on sale clause. When you, there, there is a, an exemption in, in the Garn St. Germain act of 1982 that allows for transfers into trusts. Okay. But we are not talking about, we're not talking about an inter vivos trust. That only that exemption only applies to inter vivos trusts. It's a really common misconception that um, that if you transfer a property into a trust, it's protected under Garn Saint Germain. It's just not true. Uh, not only that, but that property that is uh, that you've transferred into that trust, the beneficiary inside that trust has to be the resident. So you've completely wiped out Garn Saint Germain. It doesn't even apply. Um, a lot of people though, um, and look over your shoulder. I'm not an attorney. Um, you, you can actually, everybody's heard the term smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. You can, and there are strategies for putting properties into a revocable living trust. Um, and having, and naming the, uh, naming the, 
current owner as the trustee and a beneficiary. That's generally how a revocable living trust is created. Then what you can do after that is that you can, once, like I said, once that's recorded, once the county knows about that, then you can go back in and you can, uh, you know, you can resign trustees, you can resign beneficiaries. So, and it's all private, nobody knows about it. But understand that if you ever go to court and the judge sees who the beneficiary is and there's some, you know, if, if it's some conflict with the lender, you're gonna lose, you will definitely lose. Um, but it does, in a sense, that strategy does, in a sense, um, it is going to to kind of mask things. And, and um, so the lender is, is not going to find, they're going to find out about the transfer because you're going to notify them of the transfer, but um, it's not going to trigger anything. And besides that, I honestly, I have, I have transferred dozens of properties uh, into LLCs, into, you know, trusts. The fact is, if you make these payments, hands down, you're not, you're never going to see this happen. You're never going to see this happen. The only time you might actually even get contacted by a lender is if you've, if you've uh, not structured the insurance policy correctly. I mean, that's really it. It's the only time, it's the only kickback I've ever gotten. I've done, this would be my 74th deal. It's the only kickback that I've ever got. So just make those payments. Yep. Uh, yeah, Irma, most of the time, if, if you read those due on sale clauses in the, in the, um, in the note or, or in the deed of trust, um, they say the lender may call the note due. So yep. It doesn't mean they're going to. And that, that may in there is, and like Jeff has been saying, most of the time it is only uh, if payments are not being made, then they start digging in. Um, I know here in Texas, there's been like one bank, I think it was up around Dallas somewhere, and it was some tiny little community bank, and they went kind of hard on doing on sale clauses a few years back, but uh, I still have not heard of anyone in the last five years that I personally know have it happen, so um, just make sure those payments are getting made. Ryan, there's, Ryan. Yes. Um, of course, I belong to the San Antonio group as well, Rio group. And I understand USAA is, if they're the lender, they always do do on sale. They always take that option. Really? Yeah. Mm, I, I don't know. <clears throat> I've, um, I don't currently hold a USA, USAA. Well, I say hold a note. I don't even, I don't hold a note at all. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, it would be very tough for, for them. If you structured it correctly, it'd be very tough for them to even know, honestly. Yeah, because yeah. it's computerized again. And like you said, it gets noticed if you're not making a payment. If you're making the payment, it goes through the computer, the computer logs it, and a person doesn't get a hold of it usually. Yeah, I like to say banks have, they have, to kind of generalize things, banks have two columns. They have performing and non-performing. Yeah. When it's non-performing, that's when the bells go off. So uh, keep it performing and, and you're generally going to be okay. Yeah. And, and Guy said it in the comments, lender doesn't want to make a performing note into a non-performing note just to prove a point. They So keep it performing and you probably won't hear from them. Uh, yeah. Let's see. We got we got one more from Robert. Uh, well, we're, wait, this one has a couple in it. <laughs> it says, how... how how much control does the seller still have after the sub two process is done? 
Zero. Okay. It says, can they, he put, can they still refinance? Can they still file bankruptcy? Can they cancel the sub two process after closing and get their house back? No, no. So um, the amount of control that they have after, after the the deal is done is how much you give them. So, um, you know, when I'm buying subject two, I don't, I don't generally now understand that I'm buying in a trust. So I, I have all these, I have the option of, uh, of, naming whoever I want as beneficiary. If you wanted to be a partner with a, uh, with a seller, you could absolutely make them a beneficiary. Okay. But once you, once this is transferred, that's it. They have zero, uh, they have zero legal right to the property at all, period. Um, as far as bankruptcy, uh, it depends. It's going to depend on the type of bankruptcy, first of all. Um, Chapter 13s, generally, you can petition the court, uh, you know, if or petition the trustee um, of the bankruptcy. Uh, if you're in the middle of it, you can ask them to, you know, you say you, you want to, the seller wants to sell it. As long as the seller's not making a boatload of money off of it or something like that, sometimes you can get that pushed through, uh, through the trustee. Chapter seven, forget about it. They're liquidating everything. So um, it's generally not going to happen with a chapter seven. Um, I will tell you, so I've been through two of these now. I was actually subpoenaed for all of my records on uh, that second deal that I told you guys about where I made 25,900 bucks. That guy ended up filing for bankruptcy uh, about six or seven months after. And I'm just sitting in my, and I just go out and check the mail and sitting at my desk, open up this piece of mail and it's a subpoena from the uh, Eastern district uh, bankruptcy court. And um, he filed, I gladly handed over all of my documents. The guy did, the guy, this guy literally gave me this house. I didn't give him earnest money or anything. I put carpet in that house. I put it about on the retail market and I made $25,000 on it. He gave me that house. So, um, so yeah, you can absolutely, as long as that would be a question that I would ask your seller up front is, hey, do you have any plans on, uh, especially they're in kind of financial trouble, do you have any plans on filing for bankruptcy? If you do, let me know because they're going to look back at this transaction. They're going to, uh, you know, they're really going to examine this and uh, understand that, uh, you know, if you made any money off of this, they're going to come after you. They may even come after me. So, uh, but certainly six months is a really, really safe bet. Uh, for your seller to file after you've sold the house. Hope that answers the question. All right. Well, we're just past um, eight o'clock. So I don't see any other questions. Uh, Anybody, if you have any, you can throw them in the chat box or feel free to uh, unmute yourself. But if not, then I think we're probably going to call it a night. All right. All right. Well, Jeff, hey, dude, totally appreciate you coming and spending your evening with us. Yes. Uh, you, you dropped a, a ton of knowledge on there, and I know there's a whole lot more sitting in that, in that brain. So uh-huh. it, anybody, well, if y'all are interested, y'all be sure to go check check Jeff out. Check out his, uh, his site. Check out his, his coaching programs. Um, I know, uh, 
I've seen his students on Facebook and stuff, and they've uh, they've been having some uh, real good success with uh, the information and the stuff that he teaches them. Yeah, I appreciate you guys letting me come on here. As you can tell, I get I get uh, I get wound tight when I start talking about this stuff. So <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of questions, but by all means, uh, check out our Facebook group. Uh, subjects you can do just at sub to empire and you'll you'll see uh you'll see our facebook group there's uh, a lot going on in there and more to come all right brother well hey we sure appreciate your time thanks yes, for sir. sharing with us everybody i appreciate all y'all coming and spending your time with us this evening uh be sure to join our facebook group if you're not in it already uh throw any questions in there if you need resources uh haves and wants since we're not doing our in-person meetings right now throw them into the Facebook group. If we can help you out, we definitely will. Uh, I know I've been throwing around some referrals in there for contractors, lenders, uh, attorneys, uh, all kinds of stuff. So uh, get into that Facebook group, get active, ask questions, post deals. Uh, I haven't been wholesaling much lately. I've got three rehabs going on right now and trying some sub two deals and get this land development going. So. Uh, but throw it in there and we'll we'll get to you whenever whenever we get a chance. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks guys. Take care. Have good a good night, night. everybody.